My name is Annie Grossman and I'm a dog trainer. I'm the owner and co-founder of School for the Dogs, a dog training center located in Manhattan's East Village. On this podcast, I talk about dog training, interview industry experts, discuss pet trends, answer questions, and try to communicate my love for all things related to behavioral science. Thanks a lot for listening. I think this podcast will help make you the best possible human best friend any dog could ask for. I am here with Maria Skorbogatov. Nice. Who, I said it right, you right? You did. Perfect. <laughs> who um, I have known since uh, 1992. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Um, we met in the sixth grade uh, long before either one of us um, were dog trainers. Mm-hmm. And um, Maria and I then pretty much lost touch, I guess, like, uh, like at the start of high school, um, but we reconnected. Gosh, on was it on Facebook? I think like so. Last year or yeah. the year before? Uh, I can't even remember how. But lo and behold, we're both now <laughs> <laughs> illustrious dog trainers. We're both now <laughs> passionate, uh, passionate reinforcement-based <laughs> dog trainers who have both had. Um, rather interesting careers and um and we are meeting up today for the first time in uh in so long um because Maria happens to be in town and I said you have to come talk to me about (laughs) your life as a uh world traveling dog trainer uh and I want to know what it's been like dog training in so many countries around the world and sort of how you got into dog training because as we know um every dog trainer seems like they have their own path mm-hmm. so um yeah i don't, I don't where, where can we begin Let, let's let's start <laughs> rather than going all the way back to 1992 <laughs> i was born in 1980 <laughs> um maybe you can talk about why don't we start with maybe you could just talk about how you um got into dog training sure. initially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's one of the things I love talking to other dog trainers about, right? Because you, as you know, it, there's there's no direct route <laughs> into getting into this, this world. Uh, I started off actually working at a zoo. So I was very lucky uh, after I graduated from college. You went to like a very small college, I right? did. It was tiny, tiny school in the middle of Maine. Um, and I mean, we had about 300 students in the entire school. And I had this sort of uh, basically a, a kind of a social sciences degree and ended up moving to Texas uh, with my then partner uh, and was unable to find work and managed to eventually find a job working at the local zoo, so the Houston Zoo <laughs> in Texas. And oh, that's Poppy playing uh-huh. with her squeaky toy. And um, from there, I decided, you know, I I was seeing what the zookeepers were doing, and it was a lot of husbandry uh, and training that they were doing. What made you want to work at the zoo to begin with? It was just an available job. So it was a guest services position. Um, After about six months of trying to find work, I just, that was the first 
uh, available job that, that came up for me. Um, so I took it, and uh, it was, you know, kind of, you know, greeting guests and talking a little bit about the animals. And I'd always had a passion for animals, but never really knew how to turn that into a career. And I thought, this is great. I'll just, you know, stick around here for a little bit. And then I befriended some of the zookeepers, saw what they were doing on a day-to-day basis. And that, I thought, was just so interesting because um, it was, you know, most most modern zoos these days really focus on animal behavior and training and, and the day-to-day husbandry. To What was the name of the zoo? Where was it? It was, it was Houston Zoo in Texas, in Houston. Uh, it's an enormous zoo. It's still around. Um, they do really great work, a lot of conservation work, actually. Um, so I'd gotten to know a few of the zookeepers, and I thought, hey, this, this is something that's really intriguing. Uh, I started taking a couple of community college classes. Um, so there's like a kind of like animal, animal behavior kind of uh, um, prep course. And so I took that, really quite enjoyed it. We actually, as part of the, the course, we had to get a pet rat and, you know, train them to do a few things. So I just trained some target commands and like, you know, a come command. And, um, and then I just was very lucky in that one of the... Um, uh, departments at the zoo was hiring for a zookeeper, and it was a department that was focusing a lot on presentations with the animals. So we would go in and um, you know have the animals do certain things on cue to sort of show off their species-specific behaviors. So for example, like in the rainforest section, you would have monkeys and you would ask them to kind of brachiate through through the trees, which is basically when they swing through the trees from point A to point B, right? And this is to show the crowds how they how they locomote through the trees. And um, I do have an acting background. I have a theatrical background from when I was a kid so many years ago. And they really wanted people who could kind of like, you know, work the crowd. Um, even though I didn't have a, a formal training background, they took a chance on me. And basically, that's where my, my training career began. So it was an apprenticeship of sorts. Um, and I learned everything. At that point, that's when I read, uh, started reading a bunch of these training manuals. Uh, you know, I read actually Culture Clash uh, even though I wasn't working with dogs, but Gene um, Donaldson, exactly right. Um, and I read Karen Pryor's "Don't Shoot the Dog," and that to me was just the seminal kind of uh, moment of holy cow! This stuff I is so fascinating. I could see myself doing this for the rest of my life just from those two books alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is such a you know psychological shift, right? You you grow up thinking that you know animals and humans have a specific type of relationship and this is how they're supposed to be treated. And then I, I thought, well, no, this, this doesn't just apply to animals. It, it can apply to humans. It applies to basically anything can creature. Um, and what a wonderful way to interact with, you know, sentient beings around you. I, I was actually, I was just on a call with our apprentices last night and mm-hmm. I was, and somebody was saying like, how do you deal with people who are, you know, like, What's the word? Hmm. Like tied to using punishment-based oh, sure. techniques. Da, yeah. da, 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 da. Yeah. How do you how do you like talk to clients like that? And I mm-hmm. said, look, you know, you're there's like there are the people out there who are gonna like seek out a dog trainer who is doing specifically positive reinforcement-based mm-hmm. dog training. There are people who are just seeking out a dog trainer and happen to find you. They don't know exactly what they're looking for, sure. which is probably like where I would have fallen as mm-hmm. a client. I mean, and then there, then there are people on the other extreme who want, you know, a prong collar trainer, a shock collar trainer, whatever. Right. And I said, you're probably not going to get those clients because they're probably going to find someone else. Yeah, yeah. And to me, like the most exciting client is like the second client of client who mm-hmm. doesn't even know yet, like the wonder and magic totally. of. They, like those are the people who don't know that dog training 
actually could, can be like a life transforming <laughs> activity. 100%, and yeah. those are to me like the most exciting clients because I remember the feeling of discovering like what a magical world it is and mm-hmm. how it affects so much beyond just, you know, like house training dogs. 100%. And yeah, completely agree. Although I will say a lot of the clients that I ended up having in California when I was doing the solo stuff uh, came to me after working with the, the punishment based, True. the aversive, you know. Well, though, then those so are like, the people like in category one who are right. like looking for something specific, right? Sure, exactly. Because they're like, this doesn't work. Or exactly. This is not what I want to be doing with yeah. my dog. So, yeah, so then, I, you know, I found myself working at the zoo and falling more and more in love with, mm-hmm. you know, um, animal behavior and applied, you know, behavior stuff. Hi, Poppy. Sorry, kiddo. Sorry. I know. Maria's being molested by, <laughs> by Poppy. Who... It's, I'm getting all the love. Is it my head? Um, <laughs> and uh, then I found myself um, with a proposition of being able to move to California and applied to um, – several jobs and ended up taking a position at a humane society out there, the Peninsula Humane Society in um, South Bay in uh, the Bay Area. And it was in the behavior department there. So that's really where my career working with dogs and cats really took off um, because I was the assistant to the the behavior manager there, Um, a really great woman who um, is just, I believe she's still with them, um, runs the entire department and uh, is, is really knowledgeable. So I picked up a lot of sort of the hands-on stuff with her, with working, you know, kind of mechanics working with dogs with her while I was there. Um, I really loved the position. It was super dynamic. I mean, it was everything from, you know, fielding uh, behavior hotline calls from people with, you know, issues with their pets to doing assessments on all the dogs and cats that came into the shelter and sort of deciding, okay, what, what you know, creating these behavior plans for these individual animals before they could be put up for adoption. Um, it was fantastic. And we, we also had fantastic volunteers that would would handle dogs during our um, training classes for the dogs that were in the shelter and so I would lead them and then they would be the ones handling them so it was really an awesome experience for volunteers to kind of like pick up training and you know kind of learn this really fantastic helpful skill and then during my time there I thought I had sort of hit a wall I, I knew that there was more learning to be had and I wanted sort of a more formal environment uh, in which to learn and so that's when I applied to the um, the San Francisco, uh, the uh, SPCA training course with uh, Gene Donaldson. Mm-hmm. And it's this really, at the time, I think it's changed slightly, um, but at the time it was this really intensive 10-week course where you learn, you know, applied behavior analysis with dogs, and I absolutely loved it. It was so eye-opening. It was incredible, actually. Was Gene Donaldson teaching it? Oh, yeah, it was Gene Donaldson um, and uh, John Beguinis. And gosh, I remember, I don't know, it's so embarrassing. I don't remember the last instructor's name, but she was excellent. Um, and it was the three of them just leading lecture courses uh, for the entire 10 weeks. And, of course, because it was we were working in, a, in an animal shelter, we had dogs at our disposal that we could train with. And um, it was awesome. It was just an amazing experience. And I graduated from that, went back to the shelter for a little bit, but then realized I I kind of had gotten a little burnt out on working at a shelter, um, which is not uncommon, and decided to go off on my own a little bit. And that's when I started taking uh, clients um, just solo. I would still meet at the shelter, so I I had this nice sort of... um, uh, relationship with the shelter where they would allow me to use the facilities, they would allow me to use some of the dogs, um, and yeah, so did that for a little while, and then now I'm living uh, hundreds of miles away, 
<laughs> and traveling the world. Somehow I've managed to parlay all of that to living abroad. So then I, I know at some point after San Francisco, you mm-hmm. moved back to New York, your hometown, yeah. and you were you were doing dog walking and training. Yeah, so a little bit of training, but it was mostly dog walking, mm-hmm. um, which was which was really fun. Um, it's you know I, I really got to know sort of the underground dog walking scene here in mostly Manhattan. I did a little bit of walking in Brooklyn. Uh, but yeah, the, I mean, the dog runs, you know, you see the same people every day, you see other dog walkers, um, see a lot of, uh, I met, I actually made a lot of friends just from dog owners, you know, seeing them every single day and hanging out with, with their dogs. Um, and it was really fun. I really quite enjoyed it. Um, but I don't know how much walking you've had to do. Well, you guys, you guys offer walking services. I mean, I've been a dog walker at times in my life, including I was a childhood dog walker for the dogs in my building. I got paid a dollar a walk. Nice. And, um, (laughs) I cannot believe that anybody would ever hire a 10 year old to walk their (laughs) dog in New York City. That's a little horrifying to me right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very bad, bad idea. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm very lucky that, uh, nothing ever happened. Yeah. Um, we actually did have a client who had a 12-year-old neighbor walking her dog, um, ill-advised. Uh, I mean, I didn't know about it until the 12-year-old neighbor put the harness on wrong, the dog got loose, and was killed on the West Side Highway. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which is a good reason to not have a 12-year-old. No, yeah. Also, um, as a tangential <laughs> story, yeah. maybe you read this article. This woman on the Upper East Side came home. Her dog wasn't there. The dog had been walked earlier in the day. Um, but then she came home and the dog wasn't there, and the walker was like, "Well, I left her in your apartment." Anyway, <laughs> long story short, turns out the walker delivered the dog to the wrong apartment. <gasps> what? In another. So another client, though, obviously. No, somehow, like somehow, she managed to get into <laughs> the building next door and delivered the dog to an empty apartment. Oh my god! And. Uh, where the people were out of town, and this dog was alone in a stranger's apartment for four days before, what? before without food or water. That is a, that is a ridiculous story. Before they figured it out. I will say though, I mean, I, I heard nonstop horror stories when I was a dog walker. Oh um, yeah, another horror story I yeah. heard once was like, the dog walker. They found out the dog walker was like, stealing the dog's end of life pain medication. Oh my god. <laughs> Alright, so lesson to everyone. Yeah, just anyway. you know. <laughs> anyway, sure. so you were walking dogs. Yeah, so I was walking dogs. It was great, a whole lot of fun. I actually learned so much about New York. I mean I, I've grown up here my entire life, but I, I learned all these about all these side streets and like, you know, cool areas I'd never spent any time with. because um, I had I had clients all over, you know, the city. And it was it was really fun. Um, definitely developed a love hate relationship with dog parks. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we that could be an entire episode I'm sure. Um, but for the most part would, you know, take, take most of the, my doggy clients, um, to the dog runs. Uh, otherwise I would just, you know, take them out alongside the water and go for really long walks, but it was great. I, I quite enjoyed it. I had several dog clients who were pretty reactive on leash. That was always, uh, fun kind of working with them on it. Uh, and that's, that's sort of where my passion for training lies these days. It's more along the lines of kind of classical conditioning fear and aggression stuff. Um, so I actually really enjoyed those walks because I, it was such a great learning experience for me and, and you, you get to see a lot of um, progress being made uh, every time you go out. But yeah, so I did that for a little bit. And then um, through that job, I had this really great opportunity to go to Vietnam to basically care for a dog 
that belonged to a couple that was living there who wanted to come back home to the States for uh, about a month over the holidays. And it was actually cheaper for them to fly me out all the way to Hanoi and stay in their beautiful house than board their dog. So that's exactly what I did. I, I flew out and um, it was kind of like this dog's bodyguard. Uh, they didn't really allow the dog to go out on leash because there are so many, in, in Hanoi, I don't know if it's still an issue, but at the time there were people who would ride around on motorbikes with like these catch poles, and specifically with the, the purpose of trying to steal dogs off the streets. And they then would either ransom them to the owners to try and get money out of them, or they would sell them to the local dog meat markets. Oh my God. Yeah, it's it's horrific. Um, and so they they flew me out to basically just take care of this dog and make sure that he was going to be safe while they were gone. And I fell in love with the city. I also fell in love with uh, my now husband. And uh, since then, we've been traveling the world together. So he he works in international development. And happily for me, every new country I've been in, we've been in four at this point. I've been able to sort of parlay my background and training um, toward either helping uh, in some way with the local animal care services. So most of the countries I've been in have had some sort of shelter um, service uh, and working with, with those guys on a volunteer basis or working at a you know kind of wildlife um, uh, center, that, which I was very lucky to do when I was in Malawi. And then now I've started doing some one-on-one -on -one client stuff. I was doing that in Hanoi and then have been uh, picked that up again in Tunisia, which is uh, where we've recently moved. Wow. Well, so um, let's talk about each country. So yeah. what, in living in, in Hanoi, mm -hmm. where it sounds like there's a very different culture around dogs, oh, yeah. what was it like being, or trying to do dog training there? Was it, mo yeah. were you mostly working with expats? Or? A lot of expats, but actually um, some local um, Vietnamese as well. So with a growing middle class in Vietnam, people are starting to uh, have pets as indoor sort of members of the family. So it's becoming more and more common for Vietnamese to have dogs, mostly dogs, but cats as well. Um, and initially, so one of the nice things about you know every country I've moved in so far is that there's usually a Facebook page that I can join immediately as an expat. And it's usually just information that's invaluable for um, people who are either visiting the country or living there from outside. And uh, oftentimes, there's also a corollary Facebook page that's animal-related. So every country I've lived in has had some sort of like animal Facebook page that you can um, sign up to and learn about, you know, like uh, animal needs in that country. So whether it's kind of like a shelter needs or people looking for a dog or a dog trainer. And so signing up to those, uh, I realized that there was really um, a, a bit of a... Um, uh, which I call it, like a th there was a, a great need for someone who knew how to do dog training. So on when I was there in 2016, uh, I was pretty much it. I was kind of the only game in town in terms in Hanoi. I think in in some of the other cities there were probably other um, people calling themselves trainers. And so word of mouth spread pretty quickly. I honestly didn't really have to do. And I wasn't trying to do any advertising. Literally, I would just meet people. They would ask me what my background was in, and I would tell them. And they'd say, oh, I know so-and-so. They've got a dog. Oftentimes, it was expats um, because expats you know, tend to travel with their families, depending on you know, the, the, the jobs that they're working. And they would bring their, their pets along with them. And uh, so I would meet with one family, do some kind of whatever it is that they, they were asking. Oftentimes, it was honestly, it was just like, just socializing. Mm -hmm. um, there aren't the dog runs that you see here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're living in a place where you're worried about people coming along, right, 
uh, and snagging your dog off the street while you're walking mm-hmm. your dog. How do you socialize? You don't. Dog? And that was a huge problem. <laughs> like YouTube? Yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, there's, there's, what, what we started doing before I left was just uh, coming up with these playgroups, you oh, know, yeah. amongst families whose dogs were, you know, okay, fairly social. Some of them were Tarzan dogs. We just didn't know much about, you know, what their bag of Tarzan. Do you know that? Term? So they're, they're dogs that are, that, that are just unsocialized, right? They're, they're very eager. They want to play, be with other dogs, but they just don't have the, the rudimentary social skills. So they're a little rude. They, they can fun- be a little bit pushy. What's funny is mm-hmm. I feel like in New York City mm-hmm. where we have, uh, you know, a million options for everything, I still am always suggesting people have, like, small play groups you have in to. there. Yeah. You know, I'm like, have a puppy playtime in your kitchen. Like, yeah. I'd rather you do that with one other dog mm-hmm. than in your, you know, 200 square foot kitchen rather than going to a dog park with your you know 10 week old puppy 100% and yeah and and most dogs are woefully unsocialized mm-hmm. as you know so and that so that was a huge problem in Hanoi people weren't taking their dogs out because where were they going to go it's not safe it's it's bananas as soon as you leave your house uh, with the traffic and the noise do people train their dogs also to pee and poop inside then or? yeah so the nice thing about you know um, a lot of these houses is that they they did have outdoor spaces so the house that I stayed in when I first went over there to watch this dog for this family had a beautiful garden so that's how they could get away with not needing to walk the dog outside the dog literally just went in the garden um, but yeah, so it, it was a huge problem. Dog on dog aggression is a huge problem. Barrier frustration was really an issue there because people just leave their dogs out in the yards all day while they're at work, and of course, you know, they're going to be barking at every every noise that that goes by the house. Um, so it, that I would say was most of the stuff that I found myself spending my time on was just kind of dealing with so classical conditioning stuff, right? So getting them to not no longer be afraid of people coming to the home, um, no longer, you know, acting like Cujo when you see another dog on the street. Can you find commercial dog treats in You can Hanoi actually. Or, so you, or is there like some Vietnamese food <laughs> that you would use? That would be amazing if there was. Um, no, so I, I really came at that sweet time where there were starting to be uh, shops devoted to just animal stuff, so pet, pet shops, mm-hmm. um, where you could find pretty much everything you needed. But I've, I've always been a fan of just, you know, easy kind of like cubes of cheese and like small pieces of like hot dog or something like that, you know, really high value salient um, rewards. And um, yeah, so I would just, I people would call me, they would find out about me, they would talk about me on Facebook every now and then, and that's how I was able to, to stay pretty busy. Um, so from yeah. there you went to Rome? Yeah, right? so from there I went to Italy. So Italy's was interesting. Um, a lot more English speakers in, in uh, Vietnam than there were in... Really? Yeah, yeah. So and I, I'm not fluent in Italian. So it was, you know, I couldn't find really full-time work. What I ended up doing was finding a volunteer position at this cat sanctuary, um, oh. which is like this, this kind of internationally famous cat sanctuary that's located in these beautiful ruins uh, where apparently Caesar was killed, although I think there are a few ruins that tout that. So I spent a lot of my time just volunteering there. And, you know, it's, I wasn't doing any formal training, but I was still able to kind of work with animals and uh, use some of my behavior background and um, kind of getting some of the cats socialized and, you know, just kind of knowing how to approach them properly. So that was, that was, that was fun. Was there, like, any kind of culture shock going <laughs> from, uh, hmm. from Hanoi, from, I mean, as far as dog stuff goes, I right. mean, going from Hanoi to Rome, because Romans love their, love their dogs, right? They, yeah, they do. They're, it, I, I feel like it's more of a cat city. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you would see, you know, there's so many stray cats everywhere, but you, you would see these older ladies, they call themselves Gattaris, 
taking care of like these cat colonies. So wherever you went, you knew that they were being fed and watered and you know the vet care and all that good stuff. Dogs, I didn't see so much in Rome. So I, I was mostly based in Rome, but from what I understand that there were, there were quite a few stray dogs outside of the city. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a very pet friendly city, but the thing with dogs is they're, they're pretty anti-sterilization. So you, you know, it's was, it was a shock actually coming from the United States where you know, there's such stringent kind of spay neuter campaigns here and everyone for the most part you know, gets their dogs neutered and spayed. And going there and seeing these dogs walking around with these huge balls, or I was just like, oh yeah, I know that's a thing. Um, and it's almost <laughs> just like culturally, people aren't into you know um, neutering or spaying their dogs. I, I uh, like I, I mentioned, I've spent um, quite a bit of time in Rome with my husband's yeah. work, and um, and aren't we both lucky to have <laughs> these, these these traveling husbands with I jobs know. in Rome? It's pretty sweet. Um, and uh, a couple of summers for his. The, the programs he runs have been in Rome and, and then right away in Greece. And mm -hmm. I've definitely noticed, like, there's such a difference between the way people are with dogs in Rome and Greece. Like, Rome, mm -hmm. you can bring your dog uh, pretty much everywhere. everywhere. I mean, yeah. you can bring your dog in restaurants. Right. And, like, everybody's just, like, so laid back. Also, unrelated, the vet care in Rome is so inexpensive compared is to really? in New York Actually, City. No oh, okay. probably, like, maybe a tenth of oh, the cost. Oh, compared to New York, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was like, if we ever have, <laughs> whenever possible, get all of your vet care in Rome. Right. Honestly, do like I medical bet, tourism. I bet a lot of the times it would actually be cheaper to fly. Right. To I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Um, uh, anyway, uh, the uh, but then going from from Italy to Greece and Greece, like dogs are still largely like outdoor animals. Um, like you know, kind of like vermin. Like you're yeah, just it's like it, yeah. you're you're it, you know like. If you have a dog, you must be like a poor person kind oh, of way of looking at it yeah. and, you know, not letting dogs um, in, you know, even in like the outdoor areas of restaurants. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, and uh, so from Rome, mm -hmm. you went to Malawi, yeah. which is I think last year when we spoke, you were in Malawi. That's right. Right? Yeah. So we were there, uh, I think we were there for about three years total. Got to Malawi. Um a lot of stray animals there, so so much more than in Hanoi and in, in Rome, especially. Um, but there was also a, an animal shelter that was doing its best, but you know, staffing-wise, uh, resources-wise, still still struggling. So um, I did get involved a little bit, doing a little bit of volunteering with one of the animal shelters that I came across, uh, just trying to provide some semblance of consistent kind of like socialization, because these were dogs that were taken from the streets. Um, people, especially out in the villages, don't like dogs. They will throw stones at them. So a lot of the dogs uh, are hand shy. Um, they don't like people. They're uh, grossly unsocialized to, to people. Um, well, there must be like stray dog communities that oh, are yeah. like self-sustaining. Absolutely. Right? I mean, there were, there were packs of dogs roaming, not so much in the city, but certainly outside um, in, the, in the smaller villager, uh, villages. So uh, the concept of having dogs that are living inside with you is still relatively new. Um, what was really big there were uh, dogs used as security for security purposes. Um, and in fact, I would get people, you know, calling me occasionally saying, you know, I, can you train, you know, a dog to be a guard dog. That's not an area I'm comfortable working in. I don't have a background. You know, I, um, I could kind of piece together, you know, some sort of, you know, maybe training plan for how to bark on cue, but like, 
you know, I've spent my entire career getting dogs to like humans, right? To be yeah, joyful when they're know. around people. I mean, I, it's, it's true. It's something I really don't mm-hmm. know about. But yeah. my guess is that most people who train guard dogs are not, uh, like, followers of Gene Donaldson. Not so much. And the fact of the matter is, though, is you don't really need to train a lot of these dogs to be guard dogs. All of them are afraid of humans anyway. Right. So, <laughs> you know, you just get a dog, you don't do anything with them, leave them in the yard all day, they're going to bark at a leaf falling down outside of your yard. So I've always thought, though, if you're trying to break into someone's house and they have a guard dog, you should right. bring a dog trainer with you. Yes. <laughs> the foil, the whole whole. Because the dog yeah. trainer would probably help you f- help figure out yeah. how to get that dog to like you exactly. mighty quick. Well, it's like all those kind of like Old, old time mystery like movies, right? They always just carry like a thing of hot dogs in their pocket, right? To, oh, to, right, to, right, right, right. Distract the dog a little bit. Well, it works. They right? were the Trainers original are, dog trainers. They were. They were absolutely <laughs> classical conditioning all the way. <laughs> um, so anyway, so um, I didn't. I I was very lucky to have found a position fairly early on, working at this amazing wildlife center that took in um, injured wildlife from all over Malawi. And then for the large animals that they couldn't, you know, treat on site, they would actually go out. So like elephants, rhinos, things like that, um, hyenas, any injured wildlife, they had dedicated vets to go out and treat them in situ. So like in the in in these parks, national parks and out in the wild. Um, but it was amazing. So I, you know, I, I did some hands-on stuff. Uh, a lot of the animals we had were everything from monkeys to... Um, birds and reptiles, uh, pangolins, uh, it was really, it runs the gamut. Um, but I was mostly focused on the volunteer program. So we had volunteers from all over the world coming and basically just assisting with the day-to-day caring of a lot of the orphans that we, that we had coming in, baby monkeys, baby everything, um, and oftentimes needing round-the-clock care. So I helped kind of train, train them, get them settled into this very wildly w- different environment. Weren't you telling me, though, that part of the challenge is, mm-hmm. like, you don't want a lot of these animals to be interacting exactly. with humans because right. the the goal is putting them back out yes. in the wild. That's a hundred percent it. So, and that's something very new to me, right? So my instinct is whenever I see an animal is to try and get them to like being around me yeah, and like, humans. Let's and do like, targeting exactly, right? <laughs> and uh, but yeah, the opposite is true here because the the ultimate goal is to release these guys. We're not we're not a zoo, right? We we want to bring these guys in, keep them as quickly as possible, and then as soon as they're they're all healthy, send them on their way. Um, and it was a lot harder with the carnivores and the cats because as soon as you start feeding them, they start getting socialized to you, especially if they're quite young. Um, so we had to take great pains to Do you use like remote feeders or that kind of thing. You know, it, that was something that was discussed. And I know that there's some, um, uh, sanctuaries around the world that have had luck doing that, but we never got to that point. What we would do, though, is we would make sure that we were masked up, so we all wore the same thing whenever we were working with the animals, ah. so that these guys didn't uh, form associations with any one person in particular. Ooh. We would try and go in and out as quickly as possible without, hmm. you know, Ooh, hi, baby, hi, how you doing? Which, again, very difficult for me, because that is my natural inclination whenever I see any animal. Um, and uh, just, yeah, short and sweet, feed, and then remove ourselves as quickly as possible. Um, and, you know, we, we, we had, you know, it was more successful, uh, you know, than others. Um, you didn't have to dress individual. up as like a mommy monkey. No. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing about the baby monkeys, so they would, so we, they were the few animals that we actually had to be very, very uh, physical with. So ba- baby monkeys need that physical contact. Otherwise, they really languish in, in captivity and they can die. So they would cling to you. I mean, you, you, you get a baby monkey and it clings, clings to those closest human next to it and then uh you have to stay with that monkey throughout the night you have to sleep with them you have to stay with them throughout the day they can't be alone 
Um, but what's interesting is that uh, she, as quickly as possible, the the um, uh, animal care you know person, the manager, would try and find a monkey mama basically to take over their, their foster care. So, uh, and they were always successful in trying to in, in finding a monkey that an older female monkey already on the property that could what take kind over. What monkeys? Um, it was usually vervets, so they're like these smaller monkeys. Um, but they also had yellow yellow baboons, were which are larger um, primates. So happily, there was always a, a mama foster that the monkeys could then be introduced to. And as soon as they met their mama foster, we were like, you know, garbage. Like, they didn't care about us at all. They completely forgot about us. So that, like, that was you like, are a weird-looking monkey. Exactly. And this is an okay-looking monkey. Totally. So just to go back to the dog thing, so th- yeah. were there shelters? I mean, I, yeah. I, how do, like, in populations where the majority of the dogs are not in people's homes, mm-hmm. Like, how, how does a shelter system work? Because people forget that, like, three-quarters of the dogs in the world don't live yeah. in people's homes. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, I mean, I... Like, like how do you determine, like, is this dog okay yeah. on, on outside? Or does yeah. this dog need to be put in a shelter for the adoption? Like, right. So, I, you know, they, they couldn't... I mean, it was a tiny percentage of the, the wild dog population that made it, in, it into shelters. Usually, um, it... Oftentimes, sadly enough, a lot of the dogs in the shelters uh, came from expats. So people who had a dog while they're in the city, and then they decided to leave, go back to their original homes or wherever, and they left the dog behind. So that is a mm. quite a common occurrence that I've found not just in Malawi but in other countries How as well. How people do that? I know it's shocking, right? But it's common. I can't relate. I mean, I, know. I feel like. I mean, I both feel like I would move heaven and earth to yeah. make sure I could bring my dog wherever I went. Oh, but 100%. also, I feel like those are the people I work with. Yeah. Um, but you have to remember, too, if a lot of the reason these guys have dogs in the first place is as guard dogs, oh, yeah. then in their mind, it's kind of like, well, no, they're, they're here with the property. They stay with oh, the property. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, I, I, would, I would hear stories of you know, guard dogs who had, were tied down. Uh, and their owners left, and they were just left there with maybe mm. a bowl of water. And then, you know, it was a good Samaritan that happened to find them or the people moving in who were like, oh, I guess this dog stays with the property. Oh I guess God. they're ours now. Yeah. So so some of these dogs came from situations like that. Um, other times it's really it's just up to individual good Samaritans. So they would see a puppy on the street and say, hey, this puppy has a chance. Let me bring him to the shelter. Um, but in terms of when they were at the shelter, it's not like there was a rigorous assessment being performed on these dogs as to whether, you know, they needed a little mm-hmm. bit of behavior work before they got adopted. I mean, there was nothing of that type. Um, I mean, and were there a lot of people coming through to adopt the dogs? They're actually, so th- I, from what I understand, there were people, there was always a steady clip of people wanting, wanting a dog, um, or a cat. Occasionally some of them had cats. But no, it's not, it's not a huge, you know, line of people waiting to adopt dogs, especially when you see all these stray animals on the street, and you're like, I just pluck one off the street, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's one of these tricky things where you want to support that, the work that they're doing um, as much as possible, um, and they are doing great work, uh, but you also need a demand, right? You need enough people who want, want mm-hmm. to uh, actually adopt these, these animals out. Um, so, so yeah. from there you went to Tunisia. Yeah. yeah How yeah. long have you been there? So moved in February of this year. So really haven't been there all that long. Tunisia was a great job opportunity for him, and it looked amazing to me. I, I don't know much about Northern Africa. So we, we arrived in February, 
And immediately you see that it's it's a very cat-friendly city. I mean, just like in Rome, there are cat colonies everywhere. There, there are people that take care of them. Um, but I've never seen the amount of strays in my life as I have in Tunis. Specifically, that's where we're living. They're everywhere, dogs, cats. And shockingly to me, there's no, there's no federal funding um, to take care of these guys. There's no spay-neuter program. There are no animal shelters. I mean, there, there are a couple of private animal shelters um, started by you know expats, um, and but there's really no umbrella. There's no safety net for any of these guys, and so it's actually been I think out of all the countries I've lived in, more heartbreaking to see the state of the animals living in Tunis on the streets. They're constantly getting run over. There's constant neglect, and this is a middle-income country. It's not you know it's not a it's not a developing nation, and uh, so there are great veterinarians there. They, there are a lot of pet shops. You know, any grocery store into has a small section where you can buy cat food and dog food. And yet still, for whatever reason, there's just the amount of animal abuse and neglect is just shocking to me on a daily basis. And it's gotten to the point where, like, I'll leave my apartment and I almost have to put my blinders on because there's, there's just animals everywhere and um, needing vet care, needing, you know, some sort of assistance. And in fact, the, the first week I was there, I, I there was a, a little kitten that crawled, literally flopped on my feet that was really sick, and now we've adopted it. So I have like a little kitten, we called her Couscous. Um, <laughs> and, but it's like everyone I talk to has has many cats because that's just what, what you do. You, that's how you solve the problem is you, you take in as many stray cats as you can. Obviously, that's not a sustainable solution. Um, so I have since met a group of um, other expats who were all kind of passionate about the same things with regard to animal care, and we want to try and start up some sort of spay-neuter yeah, program. Yeah, like track-neuter. Exactly. Release. So we've been kind of, it's very, in its infant uh, stages, um, but we're trying to figure out logistics on how to make that happen. Um, obviously, it would be small, small scale, but we need to work with veterinarians who are willing to spay these guys. So in Tunis, what I've learned is that the vets there are very unwilling to do any type of sterilization before six months of age, which um, I don't know if you know much about that whole philosophy. I, I certainly don't myself, but I know that there's sort of like this thinking that you're not supposed to or it's bad for the pet to do any type of sterilization before six months. Right, but if you're dealing with, like, cats that are going to be living on the street... Exactly, and run over and dying from illness... Right, yeah. maybe better to do it right. sooner rather than later. So I think I think that's our, our first step, is just finding veterinarians who are um, okay with, with doing that and then explain, kind of explaining the situation and, and then going from there. Um, so, yeah, uh, and during that time, you know, I've, I've been working with one of the... Uh, animal organizations and through them was able to pick up a few clients actually because again once your name is out there on the street as someone who does any type of behavior uh, animal training you become popular very quickly you really <laughs> don't have to do a whole lot of advertising so I've uh, met with a few people already and it's it's but what's interesting is, is it's a lot of the same stuff right it's dog on dog frustration barrier aggression um, very rarely is it something as simple as, you know, doing basic obedience. Um, for the most part, I feel like people have that pretty, pretty down. I feel like folks who have dogs tend to be more savvy these days. Well, if you have um, a pet dog in yeah. a place like that, though, I would guess that part of what you're dealing with is reactivity to unleashed dogs mm -hmm. and stray cats on the street, 100%. not just like in New York City where right. it's your dog has issues with other dogs who are on leash. Right, right? exactly, exactly right, because you, I, I have yet to go out on a walk with a dog and not encounter a stray dog. 
um, and you don't obviously know anything about this dog, and oftentimes they'll advance, and you've got your dog on a leash. What do you do? So well, it's what do you a do? Of, so what do you do if you yeah. have an unleashed dog coming at your oh, you, dog reactive dog? You you get out of dodge as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. I mean, I I always tell my clients, you know, have a little something something treat wise in your back pocket for situations like this. To throw out the other a, dog too. Well, exactly right. Um, and actually in Malawi it was a problem. Um, a lot of uh, you know some stray dogs there. Whenever I would you know go out with the clients on walks, um, carrying water also is a huge thing as well. So I would always have a bottle of water. So if we couldn't get our dog out quickly or we couldn't distract the other dog, I would just toss water. Um, and that, that was oftentimes uh, something that, that would keep them away. It was a, an aversive enough. Um, oh, I thought, actually you, meant, I thought you meant for like the other dog to drink. No, 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 to, to, to distract them. So they were all wet and they didn't want to you know, advance any closer. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it came to that, we would, we would end up doing that. Um, but yeah, just you know, having a, a really solid kind of recall with your dog, having, you know, um, being able to distract them um, and getting out of there as quickly as possible. My, I just evolutionarily thinking as as far as behavior goes, I would think that like stray dogs on the street would not be inclined to Mm. start fights with uh, each other and leash dogs. You think, I mean, are stray dogs on the street just as likely to be reactive as like the leash dogs in our homes? Well, I think, you know, part of the the thing that leads to leash frustration is the leash, right? Or the barrier. Um, it, oftentimes, those, you, you take those out of play mm-hmm. and you're not going to have the, you know, crazy Cujo barking and lunging and, and all that stuff. They don't, they don't need to get to that point. Um, it's not being able to access one another when they want that leads to that um, oftentimes. So, yeah, I mean, I, you watch these packs, they certainly get into scraps, right? I mean, you see, you see, Especially the males. I mean, they're they're unsterilized, so they're they're more likely to engage in like situations where they're fighting. Um, but yeah, so I, I think the loud, obnoxious lunging and barking you would not see if it weren't for for the the leashes and the barriers. Hmm. Certainly. Just bringing it back to middle school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just while you were saying that, I was mm-hmm. thinking about like human corollaries mm-hmm. and how. I I think like school is so it's like it's like it's like all the kids are leashed in a way you yeah know? like yeah. you can't escape I mean right. I I don't know about you but my general feeling about school was like I was imprisoned <laughs> for yeah. uh, whatever it was fourteen years sure and had like no choice except having to go to this yeah. this place that I didn't want to go most of the time you have and to make nice right because there's no yeah, alternative it's, yeah 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 and how um actually on the podcast I talked about this before I think but like how um, you know the idea of like the bully test when you're dealing with, mm. with, um, like in puppy play times, we'll often like hold back yeah. one of the dogs, right? And if the other dogs come towards the dog, right. but like, th- then that means that, you know, they're not being bullied, right? They're mm. not being bullied, and I think that, um, you know, there was no room, there was no opportunity for that, cause yeah. Like in in school, because like you have to show up every day, right? But um, how uh how react like at least in my adult life where I most of my adult life I haven't had to interact with people I don't (laughs) necessarily want to interact with I feel like in general my interactions have been happier yeah as opposed to like leashed interactions (laughs) where you're have nowhere to go. <laughs> that makes sense, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, w- I would find that oftentimes was the case working in the shelter system. Mm-hmm. So in California, you put two dogs together who ordinarily are reactive outside of that small kennel that they're in, but mm-hmm. you, you cram them together into a, a dog kennel, and 
they're not going to bloody each other to death. I mean, in rare cases, maybe, but like, you know, they're they're going to figure it out. They they're going to try and, and stay to their own corners and use those subtle ritualized you know cues to kind of be like, you know what, don't move any further, buddy, because mm-hmm. where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Mm-hmm. So they they kind of you know right, but they're not necessarily like happy. Oh, they're miserable, hundred <laughs> percent, absolutely. But they're not you know they're not biting each other to death. And I think um, with school, especially because like it's not like you choose who you want to hang out with. Right. Like yeah. you have to go to the same classroom with That's people. True. Like. It's also so weird to me about school is, like, how you're forced to be with other people your age. Yeah. Like, what, when else in life is, like, mm. are you forced to be with people who were born within, like, 11 months That's so of true. you? That's true. Although I feel like a lot of more modern schools, so, like, the, the high school that I went to, they grouped all, um, the entire uh, body into the same classes. So, like, I would be taking classes with seniors mm-hmm. and juniors, which I thought was fantastic, right? Yeah. It's such a great learning experience, and exactly to your point. It's a little bit more natural. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, um, wow. I feel like we've covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and that's the thing. Like, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about, right? And it's just, but, um, yeah. But I, I, what I find really heartening is that everywhere I've been, there's been a really caring community of people who want to look out for the local pet population, whether they're owned pets or whether they're stray animals. Um, it is something that, you know, more and more people are getting on board with in, in terms of making sure these guys aren't suffering, right? Mm-hmm. And that they, they have good lives. So whether you, they're you have not. found those communities in each place that Every you've single gone. place I've been to, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes, you know, um, even if they don't exist, people are very open to starting something. They just need someone to kind of like, you know, start, start a project. And uh, oftentimes you'll find, you know, a bunch of board spouses who are there because their spouses have jobs and they don't who want to lend mm-hmm. their time and money especially toward these types of programs so it's it's been very um i think uh, receptive in in all of these communities to to do that sort of thing yeah and it's been great for me because you know like i you know i was starting to get a little bored here because you see the same issues everywhere you go i mean so you, you had mentioned earlier um you're, you're you're basically saying the same speeches over and over again um, and it's rare that I see something that is shocking to me behavior-wise. Mm-hmm. But what's cool is that in these communities, you don't necessarily have the resources that you might in the United States. So you kind of have to be a little creative in figuring out, you know, different ways to approach a problem, mm-hmm. um, different ways of talking about an issue um, that makes sense, right? That's salient and, and uh, accessible to a lot of these people who are living in environments very different from what I'm used to back home. So that's been really exciting for me, actually. I, I quite enjoy that. Well, and what's, what, what do you think your next step is going to be as a Ooh. trainer if you leave, uh, <laughs> well, if and when, I guess, you, you leave Tunis? You know what? That I, I, I couldn't tell you, but that's been the beauty of being able to do this type of work mm-hmm. is, um, you know, if we move to another country outside of the States, then it's going to rely completely on what that country has to offer, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what's already available there, the needs that local population and expats have with regard to animals, um, and figuring it out from there, which I, I love that that's something I get to do. I get to sort of reinvent myself in every new country I, get, I go to, but still with this you know, knowledge base that I've, I've learned along the way. Um, or we might end up back in the States, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously then... Uh, You'll be coming to work for School for the yeah, Dogs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Obviously. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Either way, it's something that if it's not my full-time job, I'm going to obviously, you know, be doing on the side in some way because it, it's a passion. It's not something you just, you know, kind of like stop learning and, you know, and how to enjoy. 
So, yeah. So I'm going to, one of the apprentices asked me this question yeah. last night, and I feel like I flubbed my answer <laughs> or didn't, didn't give as good of an answer as I wanted to give. So I'm passing it on to oh, you. Oh, great. <laughs> and you, if you, if you want to pass on this question, mm. you may. <laughs> but she said, she said, like, when you get those people, like I was saying earlier, like when you get, when you meet people, mm-hmm. maybe not clients, but family or your neighbor or whoever who just has a very different idea about how dogs should be trained. Mm. I think her example was like, I have a neighbor who um, is like letting their dog cry it out when they mm-hmm. leave for work. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, how do you handle that? Like, well, it depends. Are they coming to you for help? or Because then that's that's the barrier yeah. already. Well, I think she was saying, in this case, these people are not interested in our help. Sure. But if you if you encounter people who are willing to have a conversation with you, yeah. how do you explain to them what you do is perhaps um, <laughs> a more, uh, I don't know, enlightened right. way of approaching the situation? You know, honestly, I don't know that they there's an easy way to do that. I think you need to have a little bit of buy-in from the client from the Mm -hmm. get-go. Whether they know what your approach is or not, I think they need to seek you out for Mm -hmm. some some reason. And then once I get them in my clutches, then I can say, look, these are all the options available to you, right? And then talk about each one and uh, and then, you know, see how we can cater to, you know, their lifestyle, their needs, and while pushing sort of the stuff that, you know, is, is humane, right? Um, if it's just someone who is not seeking your counsel in any way, then I think you just have to be creative as to how to bring up that conversation. And, you know, if it's, if it's your neighbor and say, hey, you know, I, I've been hearing your dog barking and I don't know if you've tried this, but, you know, kind of come about it in a roundabout way that's not trying to necessarily, you know, um, raise their hackles and that, you know, saying that they're doing anything wrong, but then just say, hey, maybe this is something that I've heard, you know, can really help and work for these reasons. Have you tried this? Because, I mean, at some point, if, it, if it's the barking and that example is bad enough, I mean, they're going to be getting repercussions from that, right? Some neighbor's going right. to complain. Right. I mean, someone's going to come down on them. Um, I, I feel like sometimes when I've tried to explain, like, well, what, what you know, we do at School for the Dogs right. is, like, you know, rooted in behavioral science mm-hmm. and with the goal of you know, not causing pain and suffering, not using coercion, da-da-da-da-da. I feel like sometimes that gets heard as, like, you are a hippie flower Totally. (laughs) Which is not... A hundred percent. And that's why I always say, you know, positive does not mean permissive. Mm -hmm. You're not letting your dog run all over you, right? Right. In fact, you're you're setting very clear rules for them, much clearer than what most people are doing when they're using aversives, right? The dogs are usually... You know, they have no idea what what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's no contract there that you've you know signed with them from the get-go that makes it clear what your expectations are. Whereas, you know, the the stuff that we do, if anything, it's it starts off quite rigid, I think, right? And then you can make the rules a little bit more lax as well, they go. I, I like to talk about like you're you're creating a yellow brick road, yeah, like, where your your dog is gonna want to be on that road right. and isn't gonna realize that there's an opportunity to not be on that road because sure. you're making that road so awesome. So, um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and of course the problem with punishment based training is the fallout is, right. you know, and all the unexpected consequences, right. which when you understand just even a little bit about classical conditioning and operant conditioning, you can't not see that like that fallout anticipate. is going to happen. Right. Exactly. I always make it very clear to clients that look, you know, 
punishment ha- has a basis in behaviorism. Yeah. Of course it works, right? Well, that's, like part of, that's part of why I feel like it's misleading to call it, like, it, it's even misleading to say, like, well, this is science-based training right. that's based in behavior because punishment right. is part of behavior, it, it includes too. includes all of that, 100%. But then you would be remiss if you didn't then talk about the potential fallout, which mm-hmm. is great, which is very difficult to get rid of. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, it would behoove any trainer ethically to talk about that stuff, too. And then, obviously, there's only so much you can do. I mean, the client's going to choose what works for them, what they feel more comfortable doing. But your, your job isn't to fix the dogs. It's to lay out all the potential, you know, options and then have them decide. And try and steer them in, in the right decision that you think, honestly, is going to work for them. Um, but there's only so much you can do. And I, and I think, you know, I had to learn pretty early on that, that I couldn't save all these dogs. It's not, it's not my job to, right? My job is to work with these clients so that they can have a better life with, with their sure. own pets. So last question that I like to ask dog trainers mm-hmm. who are at, like, a professional level. If someone's listening to this and they're, um, you know, just maybe learning about how exciting the world of dog training <laughs> is, uh, working with their dog and thinking maybe I could make this some kind of career, mm-hmm. what would you suggest be their very first mm-hmm. step? Is there a, a, a book or mm-hmm. a program or just something to think about? Sure. Like what, what would be the number one? Honestly, I would try and get as much hands-on um, learning as possible. So if you have a local shelter, which most, most major cities do these days, see if they have a volunteer program. Oftentimes they do, in which case get involved with that. That's going to be your best first uh, introduction to just handling dogs, learning how to read their behavior and body language. Um, and, uh, you know, from there I would absolutely read, you know, some of these kind of seminal books out there. Uh, I would go with Don't Shoot the Dog because it's not only dog related, right? Um, and then, yeah, just read as much as you can um, and see if you can volunteer at a local animal shelter. Um, and then from there, I think it's just a matter of kind of seeing what courses are available. You know, when, once you get to sort of the college level, um, usually there's some sort of, be, you know, basic behavior, uh, animal behavior class somewhere that you can that you can take if it's something that you want to kind of like, you know, delve more deeply into. But honestly, I think it's a lot of hands-on stuff. It's learning the mechanics, right, which you can't really do um, remotely. You kind of mm-hmm. you kind of have to be there with, with these guys to kind of pick up the subtle cues and, and things like that. Um, and if you know of trainers in your area, but then, you know, that gets into how to kind of assess a trainer's background, um, because as you well know, as a lot of your listeners know, it, it's not a regulated industry, unfortunately. So you can look out for certain things, like if uh, the trainer is accredited with any of the um, accrediting organizations, like APDT, CDDT, you know, the, all those things. Um, but otherwise, it's really just a matter of kind of like interviewing people and mm-hmm. asking them all the right questions. And, you know, if you find a trainer that you really enjoy the work that they're doing um, and they're willing to take you on, apprentice with them. I think that's honestly just going to be the best way to, to learn about this stuff. And, you know, going on client meet-alongs um, is huge, right? Because as you know, a lot of what we do is, uh, you know, it's, it's focused on the pet, but I feel like it's more focused on the owners, right? It's, it's almost like therapy for the owners. You're mm-hmm. there to train them how to lead happy lives All with, right, with their pets. Right, like... You know, animal trainers are the rare teacher who has to teach two species at once. A hundred (laughs) percent, which is why I personally love it so much. (laughs) So yeah, so a lot of lot of really funky ways to get into it. Um, There's no direct line. 
Thank you so much, Maria. Oh, such my pleasure. It's so it's, fun to reconnect after, it's, what, 30 years? It's wild, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Facebook. Right. <laughs> Not that I want to plug Facebook right well, now. Well, and it's so funny yeah. that we've, like, both ended up doing like, I know. the same thing with our, I mean, not the same, but, yeah, like, yeah. the same relatively speaking of all the things and we could the, be doing. And the same type of yeah. training, right? I mean, you could I could have very easily have been, you know, a trainer on the dark side. And uh, yeah. But, uh, I do hope you're, you're going to move back to New York and that we can maybe work together. I'll make it happen. Point. Fun fact about Maria, she mentioned her childhood acting background. Well, she actually appeared in Silence of the Lambs. She plays the part of Clarice as a child. School, school for the dogs, for the dogs. School, school for the dogs, for the dogs. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can support this podcast by telling your friends, leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and by shopping in our online store, Store for the Dogs. Dot com. Learn more about us at schoolforthedogs.com.